I should like to call your attention this morning to this great prayer offered by the Apostle Paul for the church at Ephesus, which is recorded in the third chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians, and I shall read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that he might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now I want this morning to call your attention particularly to the last two verses Verses 20 and 21, the great doxology. Now unto him that is able to keep, uh, that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Thus the Apostle, you see, ends this amazing prayer that he's been offering for these Ephesians with this great and grand doxology. Nothing could be more fitting after the prayer than this. Indeed, nothing else would be fitting at all apart from this. We have seen how the Apostle has risen from petition to petition and from height to height. And at last he has reached the climax, the acne, beyond which nothing is possible. Nothing can ever happen to us greater than the answer to and the satisfaction of that petition that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Having asked for that, having prayed for that, there is nothing more that one can do there is no further prayer. There is nothing, I say, but to praise God. And so the apostle ends with this doxology. The apostle, I say, was anxious, having thus produced his petitions, to praise God. And it's not surprising that he should have felt this desire to praise God. Undoubtedly, it worked in his mind like this. Here he is, he's been praying that these Ephesians may be strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power by the Spirit in the inner man. That's a tremendous thing in and of itself. He has gone on to pray that they might have Christ dwelling in their hearts by faith. And then this prayer that they might know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge 
and indeed be filled with all the fullness of God. And then, as it were, he stops and asks himself, what is it that makes all this possible? And there's only one answer. It is the grace of God. He's already been celebrating it in the second chapter. He's been reminding these Ephesians that it is God who, in his great love wherewith he loved us, who has done all this. It is because of the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here, having offered the petitions, he realizes that this staggering thing which he's just been expressing in his prayer has been made possible only in that way because of the grace of God. It is all of grace. It's entirely given. There's nothing in men to deserve it, nothing in men to recommend himself. He finds himself asking for these immensities. And he realizes that it's a practical possibility because of this way of salvation that God himself has provided in and through his only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's prayed that they might be filled with all the fullness of God, and because that is something that can happen and can become true, his soul and heart are bursting with a desire to praise and to thank and to glorify the God who has made such things possible for men. I'm arguing, in other words, that the apostle ended with this doxology because he couldn't do anything else. He couldn't help himself. The thing had so gripped him and moved him. The thing was so staggering to him that he just involuntarily almost bursts forth into this great hymn of praise and of worship and of adoration. He wants all the glory to be ascribed unto him who is the giver and the author of the salvation and who alone deserves the glory and the honor and the praise. Very well. That is why the apostle, I say, uttered this doxology. But now the question arises, do we feel impelled to join him? Are we animated by the same feelings and the same thoughts? Having read these various petitions in the prayer and having gone on to the climax, do we feel the inevitability of the doxology? Are we conscious, as the apostle was, of this almost unrestrainable desire to praise God and to magnify his grace? Have we, as the apostle was, been moved and thrilled as we've realized these tremendous possibilities for us in this present life? The things we've been going through and considering in detail. We can't read this doxology without facing that question. Have we got the inevitability of it? Are we in it with the apostle? Do we feel there's nothing else to do and nothing else to say? Or are we perhaps rather feeling that the apostle has said too much? That after all, we believe the gospel and we are Christians and we believe uh, that all this is by faith, but that when he begins to talk about Christ dwelling in our hearts and 
our knowing this love of Christ and of being filled with all the fullness of God, that surely he's just gone a little beyond himself, that he's beside himself. He's the victim of his own eloquence. He's been carried on by the rhythm of his own language. I wonder whether we are feeling that. And feeling that perhaps the things that the apostle has been praying for here are not really possible for us in this life and in this world, or perhaps possible only to some very exceptional people like the Apostle Paul, or those who are called saints who have segregated themselves from the world and have gone off into monasteries and or have become hermits and have just lived for the Christian life and have taken it up as their one vocation. Do we feel that this is beyond the reach of the ordinary Christian so-called? And that this kind of thing is certainly not possible for us. Now, which is it? It's one or the other. We have either, I say, caught the glimpse of these things and seen their possibility. And if we have, well, then we must offer the doxology and join the apostle in it. But, of course, if we are doubtful and hesitant, well, we will be just debating and arguing with ourselves and saying, isn't this some strange sort of mysticism? Or, as I say, hasn't the apostle rather been carried away by his own eloquence? Which is it, my friends? This doxology tests us this morning. It isn't something we are going to look at objectively. The question is, are we in it? Do we join the apostle? Do we feel it welling up within us as something inevitable? Oh, I have a fear within me that... Uh, Far too many of us merit the rebuke that God administered to the children of old in that 81st Psalm which we read together just now. There is God looking at these people for whom he would have done so much. But they didn't believe, they staggered in unbelief. And he says, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me, there is no end to what he'll do for them. Open thy mouth wide, he says, and I will fill it. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. But they hadn't. They were frightened of the enemy. They couldn't receive these promises. They felt they were too great. They staggered in unbelief. They felt these things were not really possible. They argued, look at the enemy, they said, look at their power, look at our weakness. They didn't believe the word of God. They didn't believe the promises. And they wandered and meandered, as the record tells us, doubtful and hesitant and fearful, and uh, sitting in their tents so often and commiserating with themselves what a sorry figure they cut. And it was all due to the fact that they couldn't believe the promises. They felt they were too great, too good to be true. I ask, what is the position with respect to us? What is our reaction to the petitions that the apostle has been offering one after another, leading to the great and the glorious climax about our being filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I wonder whether the apostle had some feeling within him that some of these Ephesians might very well be like that. I raise that possibility for this reason. You notice that he couches 
his expression in this doxology in such a way as to answer such a possible difficulty. He can't forget that he is still the teacher. Even in the doxology and in ascribing praise and glory to God, there is an exhortation. He is meeting this possible lack of faith, this possible staggering in unbelief. So he puts it like this, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that is in us, unto him be glory. He might have said, you see, now unto him, the God who promises so much, be all glory in the church by Christ Jesus. But he deliberately adds that other portion. And I am suggesting to you that he does that because he had this feeling within him that perhaps some of these Ephesians were feeling as I have been suggesting. So you see, as the apostle praises God, he at the same time encourages us to pray and in a sense teaches us to pray. Very well, let me put it as a deliberate and a blunt question. Are you doubtful about these things? Do you really believe that Christ can dwell in your heart by faith? Is he dwelling in your heart by faith? Have you been able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height? And have you known the love of Christ which passeth knowledge? I mean by that, have you felt it? Have you experienced it? Have you known it in an experimental manner? I know you believe it. You've accepted it by faith. You say, yes, it is. I see it. I believe. That's not what I'm asking. We've seen that this word know carries the experimental emphasis. It is a knowledge of experience. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. Do we know it in that sense? And uh, do we know something about being filled with all the fullness of God? The satisfaction uh, which we were considering together uh, last uh, Sunday morning. Now I am suggesting that if we do not know these things, it is because finally we are ignorant of God and ignorant of the glory of God. We are ignorant of what he has really purposed for us in Christ Jesus. We are ignorant of what he really has treasured and stored up for us in the person of his only begotten Son. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him God has treasured up all his stores of grace and of wisdom and of knowledge. And we are complete in him. It's all there. Now I say, if we don't know these things, if we haven't experienced them and felt their power, it is because we are lacking in that knowledge. We haven't really grasped it. We haven't taken it in. We are fundamentally ignorant of the power and the glory of God. Very well, then, let us hearken unto the exhortation that is contained in the doxology. The apostle here, I say, comes and helps us. He stoops to our weakness. He meets us in the place of our ignorance and unbelief. And so he seems to me to put it to us like this. 
The thing you need, he says, above everything is to know the greatness of God's power. Well, how can we know that power? Well, he says, first of all, look at this great power of God objectively. Look at it as it were in and of itself. Then he will ask us to look at it subjectively. And then he'll ask us to look at it in terms of the church. But now start first of all with this idea, the greatness of God's power as seen objectively. Now I need scarcely remind those who attend here regularly that this in a sense has been the greatest theme of the apostle. From the end of the first chapter right until this point at which we have arrived. You remember that way back in that first chapter, the apostle writes to these Ephesians and he says that he's praying for them. He's praying without ceasing for them. And he's praying that the eyes of their understanding may be enlightened. These people who've already believed the gospel, they're already saved, they've already been sealed by the Spirit. Oh yes, they're quite all right, they're perfectly orthodox, and they're truly Christian, and they know that their sins are forgiven. Yes, but says Paul, I am praying for you that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. Why? Well, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? That's the thing he wants them to know. And he at once begins to describe it in terms of the power that was exerted by God when he brought his own son from the grave back again into the world in life. The resurrection power. That's it. He wants them to know that. He says that's the power that's working in you. And then in the second chapter, he's worked it all out experimentally and in detail. And here he comes back to it again. He wants them to know this. The exceeding greatness of his power to us that believe. If only we knew that, we'd never stagger in unbelief at anything. So the apostle wants them again to look at this power. He's already, I say, defined it and described it and illustrated it in the power of the resurrection. But now he comes and puts it in a different form here. And he puts it in most extraordinary language. If ever language was strained, it's strained in this doxology. And of course he strains language because language is inadequate. He is now trying to define the indefinable. He's trying to measure the immeasurable. He's trying to put in terms that we can grasp the illimitable and the absent. And this is, you see, how he puts it. Watch him as he piles his words one on top of another. Unless the authorized version here is really inadequate. It doesn't bring it out. It reads, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But you know what the apostle really wrote was this. Listen to him. He takes a superlative, then he adds a superlative to it. He first of all says, unto him that is able above or beyond all things. Well, you'd have thought that that was enough. What is God able to do? Well, he's able to do above or beyond everything, all things. But he wasn't satisfied. He added even to that. He adds to that, exceeding abundantly beyond. 
all that we ask or think. So let me read the entire sentence to you. Now unto him who is able above all things to do exceeding abundantly beyond. I say that's straining language. Even that is inadequate. It shows the total inadequacy of language. And of course the apostle is absolutely right. You use your greatest superlative. It doesn't describe the power of God. Add another to it. And multiply them and add them together and multiply again and go on and on and on. Beyond all things exceeding abundantly beyond. Well it's nonsense in a sense and yet of course it's absolute truth. Is there anything beyond all things? Yes, the power of God is. It's exceeding abundantly beyond, beyond all things. That's precisely what he wrote. And he does it, I say, in order that they might have some conception of this power. Are you doubting my prayer, says Paul? Do you think I've gone too far? Do you think I've just been carried away by my own rhetoric or eloquence? Do you think I'm just lost, as it were, in some mystical state where logic and reason have been left behind? Listen to me, he says, I've been praying to a God whose power is eternal and absolute. Beyond all things, exceeding abundantly beyond. That's the power about which I'm thinking, and it's in terms of that power that I've been praying. And then, of course, he comes down to our level and helps us a bit. This power of God, he says, is beyond all things and exceeding abundantly beyond in its ability to do above and beyond what we ask or even think. Now, sometimes in our prayers, we may think that we've been a little bit daring. We've asked for something that seems quite impossible. But uh, moved by the Spirit in our prayer, we've asked for something that seemed to us to be quite impossible. It's all right, says Paul. He's able to do beyond all things, exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask. John Newton understood it. And that is why he said in the second verse of that hymn that we've just been singing, look here, he says, are you going to pray? Well, before you utter a sound, stop, think. Ask yourself what you're doing. Don't rush with your petitions to God. Wait for a moment and ask yourself, to whom am I praying? Who is the being and what is the being that I'm about to address? And he answers his own question by saying, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, you can never ask too much. Never. Bring your most daring petitions. Bring your most impossible requests. Add others to them. Let the whole church join together in their wildest desires and demands. Go on, it's all right. For his grace and power are such, you can never ask too much. It's beyond all that we can ever ask. But not only that, it is beyond even that which we can think of. 
And this is not a distinct division without a distinction. There is uh, this difference, isn't there, between what we ask and what we think. We are constantly drawing this distinction in daily life. We talk about the realm of the possible. Politics, we are told, is the art of the possible. Concentration upon the possible. Ah, men may say, yes, it would be very wonderful if we could. Ah, but it isn't possible. He can think of something very wonderful. A man can think of an ideal and a perfect state. But he says, in a world like this, you can't, so you don't ask for that. You ask for that which is possible. There is this distinction between what we ask and what we think. There, there is this uh, limit which we tend to put upon our requests and upon our actual petitions because we are always hemmed in and bound, as it were, by this idea of the possible. But then we like to soar in the mind and in the imagination and to think of possibilities. And we say, oh, how wonderful it would be if only that were possible. We've risen to a higher level altogether. It can't happen in this world, but we can conceive of it, we can think of it. Ah, oh, the apostle covers that also. He is not only able to do exceedingly beyond, exceeding abundantly beyond all things and all that we can ask, but also all that we can conceive of, all that we can think of, all that we can imagine, all that we can spend with the highest flights of an inspired thought and imagination. He's altogether beyond it. Isn't this our trouble, my friends? God is not man. And the greatest sin of every Christian and of the Christian church is to limit the eternal, absolute God according to the measures of our own minds and our concepts and understandings. Oh, the Bible's full of it. God's people have always been guilty of this. They have limited the Holy One of Israel. If only, says God to them. And it was the same, you remember, when our Lord was here in the days of the flesh. He said the same thing to the people of Jerusalem. If only. But I say it is, alas, the record of God's people. They've all tended to stagger. Sarah did. They've gone on doing it through the Old Testament. It happens in the New when the angel went to announce to Mary that she was to give birth to the Son of God. Mary staggered in her unbelief and the angel had to reprimand her saying, With God nothing shall be impossible. Why do you say, How shall these things be? How can these things be? You're staggering because you're thinking as a human being. You're limiting God. I'm talking about what God's going to do. And with God, nothing shall be impossible. And you remember how one afternoon the disciples, having watched our Lord dealing with the so-called rich young ruler, and having heard what he said to him, this good young man who'd kept the law in his sense of keeping the law, 
Handsome probably to look upon, a man well known for his benefactions and for all his goodness, he goes away sorrowful. And these apostles come to our Lord and they say, Who then can be saved? And our Lord looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Oh, how constantly we are guilty of this. We are guilty of limiting God in our petitions and requests for ourselves. We say, I'm a busy man of affairs. I haven't got the time. How can I be filled with the fullness of God? These things are not possible. So we limit his power. We limit our petitions with respect to others. We say the man is so steeped in sin, nothing can save him. You're concerned about some loved one and dear one who is antagonistic to Christ and blaspheming his name. You've prayed for years. You say there's no point in it. I believe psychology is right after all. It's a matter of temperament. And you give up praying. It's impossible, you say. And the answer is with God, nothing shall be impossible. He is able to do beyond all things, exceeding abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Israel, open thy mouth wide. And he will fill it. We are praying to God the omnipotent, the everlasting and the eternal. There the apostle has invited us to look at the greatness of God's power, objective. But come, let's come to the second way in which he asks us to consider it. He asks us to look also at the greatness of God's power considered subjectively and in the realm of experience. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, Comma, according to the power that worketh in us, comma, unto him be glory in the church. According to the power that worketh in us. Ah, he's come down to the subjective. He is now meeting us on our own ground. You say, ah, yes, I've listened to your description of the power of God. I've read it in the Bible before myself. I see it there away in the distance somewhere. But there's all the difference between believing that and my life and my experience. Can that come into this? That's the question. Well, says Paul, it not only can, but it has, according to the power that worketh in us. I'm not speaking in a purely academic and theoretical manner, says the apostle. I'm appealing to your own experience. The power that I'm talking about is the power that is already working in us. He brings it right down to that. And therefore this is in a sense a still greater proof because it answers all our objections that may arise from our subjective feelings. Now the apostle here is in a sense summing up most of what he's been saying in this great epistle in these first three chapters. Is there anybody in Ephesus, he seems to ask, who is doubting the power of God? Is there anybody still tempted to say that I've gone too far and that I'm asking for the impossible? Very well, he says, I've already described the power of God to you. But look here, you've got a proof, a better proof. Listen to this. What about this power that is working in us? And first of all, he thinks of himself. I have no doubt at all. You remember how we saw him referring to this at the beginning of this third chapter. 
He says, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, Lord, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. There he's taken them back to his own experience. Does anybody doubt the power of God? Well, if so, says the apostle, look at me. I was before a blasphemer, a hateful and an injurious person. I hated Christ with all the intensity of my being. I did my best to massacre the church and to destroy it out of sight. There I was, and I was going down to Damascus, breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Never was a man so opposed to Christianity. Never was a man so held by prejudices, national prejudice, prejudice of training, prejudice of religion and of learning, prejudice of self-conceit and of self-righteousness. Oh, the impossibility of a man such as Saul of Tarsus ever becoming a Christian. But I am a Christian. I am the man who preached the gospel to you. And how has it come about? There's only one explanation. It's the power of God. Nothing but this eternal power of God could have turned the blaspheming, persecuting Pharisee into the apostle of Christ, yea, the apostle of the Gentiles. But this is a power that has not only been working in Paul, it is a power that has been working also in these Ephesians. Listen to it, here it is. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing more impossible than death. It's the end of all things, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others, there they were, absolutely hopeless. But he adds to the description. Wherefore remember that, in to be, that he being in times past, Gentiles in the flesh, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, barred out of the temple by the middle wall of partition, utterly hopeless, lost, damned pagans. How can such people ever be Christians? How can such people ever become inheritors of God? How can such people ever be joint heirs with the Jews? Oh, the thing is a sheer impossibility. And yet, says the apostle, you know it's happened. You are in the church. And it's all happened because of this self-same power. I want you to know that it's that power that alone has enabled you to believe the gospel. You couldn't believe without it. You were dead. A man cannot believe the gospel in and of himself. He needs the power of the Spirit. It leads to belief. Without it, a man is dead and lost and hopeless and damned and ruined and under the wrath of God. But God can quicken the very dead. And he had quickened these Ephesians. He'd put life into them. He had raised them together with Christ. 
He had caused them to be seated even in the heavenly places with Christ. These, I say, who were so far off and so utterly and absolutely hopeless, the power of God had entered into them and had dealt with them and had delivered them. And they were there with Christ seated in the heavenly places. And the logic, you see, is this. The God who can do that can do anything, can do everything. There is no limit to such power. But very well, my friends, let us ask ourselves the questions. Have you known this power? Does this particular argument here between the commas help you? According to the power that worketh in us, have you felt it? Do you know it? Do you know the change? Do you know the imparting of life? Are you aware of a new life thrilling in your being at this very moment as I'm speaking to you? Do you know the power of the Spirit sanctifying you, revealing sin to you, bringing to light the hidden things of darkness, explaining the Word to you, creating desires after holiness and righteousness within you? Are you aware of being dealt with by God? Is He moving in you? Do you feel and know that He can keep you from falling? This argument is valueless to all who have never known the power. But if you know this power of God working in you, well then I say you must go on, you must be logical and say that God who has done this for me is a God who will do all the rest and there is no end and no limit to it. It is God's power and it is endless and eternal. I therefore argue with the apostle, if you know the power well, then you can't stagger at what he's been offering. If you've already felt this power, well, then it isn't too much to pray that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And you must, you must go on, follow your own logic. The power that has brought you hitherto will bring you to that. And you can know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. So he makes them look at the power objectively and then makes them look at it subjectively and thirdly and lastly. He asks them to look at the greatness of this power as it is seen and manifested in the church. And to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Again, you see, the apostle is summarizing what he's already been saying. There is the description of the power. We know something about it experimentally. We have felt the power. We know the power. It is still working in us. Yes, but I suppose that another powerful argument and one of the most powerful arguments of all to bring us to a realization of this power of God is just to look at the Christian church. What a miracle. There it is, the apostle, as I've told you, has just been telling them about it. They were Gentiles, aliens outside the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. There they were, and here were the Jews, self-righteous, proud, nationalistic, and the middle wall of partition between them. Reconciliation between Jew and Gentile? 
Madness, not within the realm of practical politics, the sort of thing that can't happen. Nonsense, this wild imagination, this fevered imagination of this man, this epileptic. Impossible. But it had happened. You that sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He has made of both one. He has broken down the middle wall of partition between them. Therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are being built up together on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. It had happened. Nothing but the power of God could ever have brought about this reconciliation, could have produced the church, the one body, we, by him we both have access, by one body and by one spirit unto the Father. Oh, you see the argument. There is nothing in a sense that so shows the power and the glory of God as the Christian church. The apostle has been reminding them of that in the 10th verse of this third chapter. This, he says, is the intent to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And not only the wisdom but the power by the church. You see, it works like this. He'd already mentioned it all at the beginning of that first chapter when he asks them, uh, that, that the, when he prays that they might know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who are to believe. He says it's the power which he wrought in Christ uh, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. There it is, you see. That's what he's saying here again. The church is the body of Christ, and he is the head. And there is nothing that gives such glory to God as the Christian church. Oh, God manifested his power when he created the world out of nothing. He said, let there be light and there was light. The mountains and the rivers and the raging sea, the lightning and the thunder, they all proclaim, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. But there is nothing that so proclaims the glory of God as the Christian church, the body of Christ and Christ himself the head. And men and women such as you and I are, men and women that were steeped and lost and dead in sin, members of the body, the body of Christ, here is the glory of God. So it's not surprising that he says unto him, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. It is all in Christ and all through Christ. We are in him. We are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones, as he's going on to say in chapter 5. You see, it works like this. The Son glorifies the Father, and the Son is glorified in us. He says so. Read the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. He says, I am glorified in them, 
And he has glorified the Father. And thus we minister to the glory of the Father in the church by Christ Jesus. What a wonderful picture. There is the measure and the manifestation of this great power. But I must introduce you again to this last phrase of his Another one again where he seems to be beside himself and piles on his adjectives upon his adjectives and his superlatives upon his superlatives. Again our authorized is inadequate. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, it says, throughout all ages, world without end. But this is what the apostle wrote. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. To all the generations of the age of the ages. You can't add to that. All the generation. All the generations of what? Well of the age of the ages. What is the age of the ages? There is no age to the ages. It is the age of the ages. Age upon age upon age. Forever and forever. Infinite number of ages. Everlasting eternity. And you notice what he says? The church is going to be there. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus uh, throughout all the generations of the age of the ages. You and I are going to be there. Unto all the generations of the age of the ages. The principalities and powers in the heavenly places will look at us in astonishment and amazement. And they will ascribe unto God all the honor and the glory and the majesty and the might and the dominion and the power. It is here they see the glory and the wisdom of God as they see it nowhere else. And you and I will thus be manifesting this glory forever and forever and to all the generations of the age of the ages. That's the power of God. While we are still in this world, it is a power that is great enough to keep us from falling. You remember Jude's doxology and benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep us from falling. Oh, but he's not only able to do that. He is also able to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Unto him be glory and power. And unto him alone, the only wise God, our Savior, beloved people, are you in this? Are you thrilling with the doxology? Having looked at the possibilities that are here open for you even now in Christ Jesus, having offered the petitions for yourself, have you said, Oh, let all the glory on earth and heaven and sea and wherever citizens and beings are, let it all be ascribed unto the blessed God the Father of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.
our God, the God of salvation. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Unto all the generations of the age of the ages. Are you in it? Amen.